book of, of Daniel is divided into two. First, in, in the first division, we found that the or the theme of it was the sovereignty of God experienced in the service of the present. And we covered two of the chapters. Daniel is one of the few books in which the chapters are good. The chapter divisions are good. And we found in the first chapter that it was preparation for a life of service. And in the second chapter, Nebuchadnezzar shown the sovereignty. Um, um, Nebuchadnezzar shown the sovereignty of God in world history. And you will remember that we spent some time last week upon that uh, vision of a human image which he saw, which was divided into four, some would say five, um, four with an extension of the last. A head of fine gold, a breast of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet and toes of iron and clay. That was the uh, image which Nebuchadnezzar saw, and it was a representation of world history from the beginning, from, from beginning with uh, Nebuchadnezzar to the end. And you will remember that the stone which was cut out without hands, without human hands, which suddenly he saw hurtling down, struck the image on it, the, its weakest spot, its feet. And with that, the whole image crumbled into dust, and then a miracle happened. The winds carried it away, and it was no, it was no more. Um, it was a vision of the of world history, of what we call Gentile history, right through to its final consummation, in which we today are still found. Uh, it's not come to its final climax yet. And then suddenly, and this is the point you will find throughout the book of Daniel, everywhere the end will be abrupt and sudden. Suddenly, suddenly. The whole thing will be destroyed. Within a moment, the whole thing will be terminated and ended and finished with and destroyed. And uh, uh, then we find that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of God and of his Christ. Well, that was Daniel chapter 2. And I think you will see straight away that because... This chapter shows us not only the sovereignty of God in world history, but it also shows us the sovereignty of God experienced in the present. Because the four, the four faithful ones, there, Daniel and the three friends, were advanced and promoted. Daniel right to the court of the uh, king of, of Nebuchadnezzar, and the other three through Daniel's plea to become sub-governors of the province uh, of Babylon. That was the result uh, of um, uh, the uh, of the interpretation of this dream. Rather wonderful. Now you do tell Derek to come in and tell us. Um, so you see um, straight straight away um, 
really how we see in this chapter um, uh, two of uh, Daniel, not only the sovereignty of God in world history, revealed to the man Nebuchadnezzar. Later on, we're going to have another vision of world history in chapter seven. But this one has a peculiar relationship to Nebuchadnezzar. Here was the man who ushered in the times of the Gentiles. And the first step, as it were, it, toward his conversion was the revelation to him in a dream of the sovereignty of God, not only over his own times uh, and his own day, but right down through world history, centuries that stretched out before Nebuchadnezzar. Well, though the, you can see straight away what we have talked about in Daniel and the Three, service, service to the Lord under and linked to the sovereignty of God. Here it is in prayer and testimony. First, they were utterly cast upon the Lord. It was only through prayer they got a revelation, an understanding of this dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And secondly, how they testified, not only to the unseen. When that wonderful prayer of Daniel in chapter 2, when he simply says that, Lord, you can do anything. You set up, you pull down. Uh, and so on. There's a testimony there. And later, when he comes to Nebuchadnezzar, he says, "Do you not? You mustn't think, O King, that I uh, interpret this to you. It, it's closed to human beings. But there is a God in heaven, and that you may know that there is a God in heaven who can do all things and knoweth the secrets. Uh, uh, I come to interpret this dream. When you come to chapter three, you come to the next." Uh, um, subdivision of this first uh, section of Daniel. And I have entitled it Nebuchadnezzar shown practically the sovereignty of God in delivering the three from the furnace. You see, the first step towards Nebuchadnezzar's conversion was for him to have a dream. And then it came into his mind to make it absolutely impossible to interpret that dream. So he wouldn't tell them what the dream was. He said, if you're all so wonderful, you wise men, you dream interpreters, well, you tell me what the dream was, as well as the interpretation of it. Uh, God had now revealed himself through Daniel and the three to King Nebuchadnezzar. And he revealed himself through that dream as sovereign over world history. But that wasn't enough. After all, we can all have dreams and we can all talk about the future and so on. Nebuchadnezzar was now to be, to be brought one stage nearer to the sovereignty of God in his own circumstances. Shall we say, in his own life. How did it all happen? Well, you know the story, surely, from Sunday school days of uh, Daniel chapter 3. I think there are four things we can mention. The first is there was an image. And I suggest that, it, that Nebuchadnezzar thought of this image as a result of his dream. He made an image, a huge image, nine cubits broad, and I think it is um, uh, uh, 60 cubits high, six cubits broad, which is uh, rather uh, slim and narrow, but quite tall. And he made it of gold, <coughs> and it was a, a human image. I'm sure that it was suggested by what he saw, the head of gold. <coughs> o king, thou art the head of gold. Out of this dream, Nebuchadnezzar decided to erect an image. And furthermore, he insisted that there should be um, 
congregational worship of it. Other uh, heathen kings had set up images in their time of themselves. Some of those uh, images have exist, uh, are still in existence. But the great difference with Nebuchadnezzar was that he produced a kind of state worship. He produced a form of congregational worship which was unknown. Uh, that the, the whole um, court and people should at a given signal, which was a certain <coughs> band or orchestra which played, should prostrate themselves in worship before this image of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, it was, uh, shall we say, he almost uh, produced a kind of state religion. He linked religious worship with the government in a form of state uh, religion. And um, it was morally difficult for anyone to resist uh, the claim of, of, uh, of worship. Uh, to the, toward this thing. Um, this is not unknown, of course, in present day, in, in, in present day uh, circumstances. Uh, <laughs> during the last uh, two or three decades uh, or more, <clears throat> the Lord's people in Japan faced this problem as one of the most difficult and thorny problems uh, that they had to face. Whether they should worship at every corner, every turn in national life, they had to do obeisance to the emperor. Many Christians got out of it by saying that it was just an act of, uh, of reverence to the uh, state head and so on, but in actual fact it was, as any of you who know anything about Shintoism, it was of course a form of worship. The emperor was God, he was the son of God, and still is supposed to be the son of God toned down today, of course, because of American influence in Japan. But whether it will be toned down forever, we don't know. Uh, but he was supposed to be the son of God and, and demanded the worship of the nation. Now, <clears throat> this was the problem that faced them, uh, as we find it in Daniel chapter 3. And um, you know the story. The three, we don't know where Daniel was at the time. He may have been right outside of the province altogether on the king's business. We don't know. But the three refused to worship. And when uh, accusation was made to Nebuchadnezzar about them, uh, and he was, they were brought before him, uh, they were absolutely uncompromising. We must say this in defense of Nebuchadnezzar. He did give them a chance. If you read chapter 3, it's rather amusing, the way he says to them, now look here, you three, when you hear the so-and-so, the so-and-so, the whole band, uh, will, it, will you bow down and worship the image which I have made? And they said, no, we won't. Uh, and they said, um, we want to make it absolutely clear to you, O king, that uh, our God is able to deliver us. We believe that our God is absolutely able to deliver us from your wrath and from anything that you are going to do to us. But, and this is the whole point of this chapter, if he does not will to deliver us, so be it, we die. But be it known to you, O king, that we will not bow down and worship your image. Now that was the spirit of absolutely uncompromising faithfulness of which the whole book of Daniel is made. 
You see, it wasn't that they said, oh, Lord, we, we, uh, oh, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we know the Lord's going to deliver us. We know he's able to deliver us. Their attitude was an absolutely realistic one. We know that the Lord is able to deliver us, O King Nebuchadnezzar, but if the Lord wants us to be martyrs, if it's not his way to deliver us, very well. You must not think that we're going to bow down to your image. We'd prefer to die in the flames. An absolutely uncompromising attitude and testimony. Now you know the story. They were put into the furnace. It slew the men that carried them in. Uh, they were flung in. And then, and not until they were flung in, the fourth. There were only three right up to the moment of being thrown into the fiery furnace. But the moment the three were thrown into the fiery furnace, they became four. And that, I might say, has a lot uh, of instruction for all of us. Because in any tribulation or any problem that the Lord calls upon us, any trial of fire through which the Lord might call us to go, we shall never know the fourth until we're in it. If we dither outside waiting for the fourth to appear before we go in, to hold our hand as we go in, uh, we, shall, we shall never, ever know anything of the presence of the fourth. Uh, we shall compromise, we shall be lost. It's only when they're prepared to go in and die in the flame that the fourth appears. Now, my point is this. The fourth is the personification of the sovereignty of God. May I put it this way, some, pe some people have a horror of this word, the sovereignty of God. It's so awesome, it's so severe, it's so cold, it's almost mechanical in its outworking. But you know really the sovereignty of God is bound up with a person, and that person is Jesus. If you have the Lord with you, you have the sovereignty of God with you. If you have the Lord inside of you, the sovereignty of God is within the, the three became four, and the fourth was the personification of the sovereignty of God. With the fourth, the, flat, the fire could not destroy them. It couldn't hurt them. Now, the Septuagint, and I haven't brought it in because we haven't got time this evening. I would have read it to you otherwise. Those of you who've got the Septuagint version, read it when you get back because you'll be delighted with it. It's got a rather long-winded prayer in it. I doubt very much, actually, uh, whether that prayer was the prayer, the actual prayer <coughs> of the time. I suspect that that's been made up by some devout rabbi uh, afterwards and put into their mouths. But the one interesting little uh, point of truth is this, that it says that when they were cast in, they went into the furnace singing. And the thing that attracted Nebuchadnezzar to the side of the furnace to see what on earth was happening was the fact that they were singing praises and blessing the Lord. It was then when he saw them singing that he noticed the fourth was with them. There's a lesson there uh, for us all. The fourth is the personification of the sovereignty of God. With the fourth they were already delivered. Now, when they came up out of the furnace, you couldn't smell any burning and there was no singeing, which speaks to us of the simple fact that when we go through a really rough time, the Lord means us to come through without anyone else suspecting anything. When there's an awful smell, uh, 
uh, about it, there's something lacking somewhere. There's a, a smell of singeing, a smell of burning, as we often say. Somehow we've come through, and everyone knows that we've just got through, but they know we've been through a very rotten time. Uh, we've, uh, there's an awful sense of it uh, surrounding us. Well, that's so much for that chapter. The result is not only that they are not harmed, but they have a deeper experience of the Lord. And there's a state decree and there's more promotion. Those are the results of that chapter three. I think, there's, uh, I think we ought to take very real note of it. Now, when we come to Daniel chapter four, <clears throat> and I don't think we need to spend so very long on this chapter, we, I have entitled it Nebuchadnezzar's experience of the sovereignty of God in his own life and his conversion. Now there's one stage nearer. First, the, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's been shown the sovereignty of God in world history. Secondly, Nebuchadnezzar has been uh, shown um, the sovereignty of God in a practical way. He didn't just see it in a dream. We can all read a book or see a dream or a vision and yet be very, really, almost unaffected by it. But to see three people that we've put into trouble actually delivered in spite of us and come out of it without the thing, without them being harmed or injured, and a fourth to have appeared in the midst of it all with them, like unto the a son of, of God, unto the son of, uh, son of God of the gods. Well, that might bring us into a, a, a more touching on an experimental knowledge. But Daniel 4 shows us something very, very wonderful. In spite of all this that had happened, Nebuchadnezzar was absolutely unregenerate. And he had such pride in his heart. You know the story. It's his testimony. It's a very, very beautiful document that is contained in Daniel chapter 4. It is his own uh, personal autobiography, if you like, concerning his conversion. He begins with the fact that I, Nebuchadnezzar, of <clears throat> course, we have no other uh, record of this. The only record we have is in Scripture. But I don't think that's any reason to doubt the authenticity of the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar in his last days. The whole point was this, that when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, Daniel interpreted that dream. And there's a lot about that dream and the interpretation of it which is very interesting when we come to interpret some of the other visions. I feel that if some of the expositors had interpreted, had gone to the lengths in interpreting this dream that they go to the, uh, with the visions, there would have been an awful lot of trouble. However, leave that by. It's very interesting. Uh, it does help us, though, in an understanding of the symbolism and the way to interpret symbolism. Uh, Daniel interprets this dream. You know how he interprets it. It's, it's uh, interesting. He says that... Uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be smitten with a form of mental, uh, in mental illness, we call it lycanthropy, <coughs> when a person takes on the character of an animal. Of course, we don't see such people, they're always shut away, but it's, it's a definite form of mental illness. Uh, they claw like animals, they walk like animals, they grunt, and uh, so on like animals. It's the most weird and uh, strange type of illness. It's called lycanthropy. It, it is that that Nebuchadnezzar was smitten uh, with. And the end of it was that he came to know the Lord. When he said that he had done all this, 
creation. This was great Babylon which he had built. And so on. He went one stage too far. Now, don't all feel sorry for Nebuchadnezzar and think the Lord's being pretty rotten. You must remember that Nebuchadnezzar was, was responsible for thousands upon thousands of people, innocent people, going to their deaths. He may have been a, a, a genial man in some ways, some aspects of him, but he was still a despot. And this was the way the Lord treated him and dealt with him and brought him to his senses. And the end was that Nebuchadnezzar became a true human being. The last days of Nebuchadnezzar, according to the scriptures, were that he knew the Lord and he understood something, a little, of the purpose of God. When we come to Daniel chapter 5, we had that other wonderful account. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's gone. Now it's Belshazzar, the last of uh, uh, the last reigning or last uh, in the line, mentioned anyway in scripture, uh, in the Babylonian uh, Empire. He was actually co-regent. He wasn't ever actually uh, king in his own right. But we come to this wonderful account of uh, Belshazzar. We can move over it quite swiftly. You know the story, I think. And I have <coughs> entitled it The Recalling and Promotion of Daniel by the Sovereignty of God at the End of Belshazzar's Reign. <coughs> Why do I say that? Because the last recorded instance we have of uh, Daniel in chapter 4, he was only 45 years of age or so. When we come over to Belshazzar, he is now an old man of 84. Quite a large portion of life has quietly sped away, and we have no record of it in Scripture except that Daniel was evidently faithful uh, right the way through to the Lord. And as far as we can see, he was either retired or... Uh, after Nebuchadnezzar's death and the reign of his sons and so on, uh, he had uh, been rather um, gradually receded, as it were, into the background. Belshazzar gave a great feast, and it's one that is famed in history because it was the night of one of the most remarkable defeats of the ancient world when Cyrus smashed the Babylonian Empire in a night and the whole thing crumbled to pass away forever from the face of human history. Well, uh, this um, uh, amazing uh, feast that uh, Belshazzar gave, he had a raised dais, and on the dais he sat with those, his wives and concubines drinking, and all the others around. Uh, there was a scene, uh, evidently of debauchery and license, as so often they were, and in their drunken stupor, they cried to the stewards to bring from the treasury the, the, the vessels of the house of God at Jerusalem. They would drink out of them. And so the vessels, those sacred holy vessels that were, had been put into the treasury, were brought out and filled with wine. And so these drunken men and women started to profane and defile the vessels that belong to the house of God and to the service of God. Then suddenly, on the plaster of the wall, above the great lampstand, appeared just a human hand, nothing else, just a great hand, which started to write in Chaldee upon the wall, uh, 
uh, a sentence that no one could understand. Now you know the story so well. There's that lovely little record of Belshazzar when it says his knees smote one the other and the colour of his face changed. Uh, the whole drunken stupor of the uh, crowd was um, suddenly arrested and the whole place was in uproar. Uh, and the Queen Mother uh, was brought in, so it says in the story, by the sound of the uproar. She evidently was no party to it, which is a very interesting thing because the influence of um, Daniel in the court uh, with Nebuchadnezzar and others has been very great and it will be very interesting one day to know just how deep and profound his influence was. She came in and she said, well, there's no need for any of you to be upset and uh, agitated. Your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, had uh, a man that he thought the world of. Uh, his name is Belteshazzar, Daniel, and he's still alive. If you call for him, he's one of the courtiers, uh, so you call for him, he'll come and he'll speak. Daniel's brought in. Now, already, and this is the point, already Belshazzar said, whoever interprets the writing on the wall, and no one had been able to, will be made third ruler of the kingdom. Now, his father, who was a bit of an archaeologist and was buried somewhere in Arabia when Babylon fell, and had left Belshazzar as co-regent in charge of everything uh, in Babylon, um, uh, so it meant that his father was the first ruler of the kingdom, Belshazzar was the second ruler of the kingdom. He could only offer the third rulership, the third position uh, of the kingdom to whoever it was. It was a very interesting sideline on the authenticity of the account. He couldn't give the second, he could only give the third. And he said, I will give the third position in the whole empire to the man who can, who can uh, uh, interpret this. Daniel was brought in. Daniel was 84, an old man. I don't think he won minded one moment if he was going to be struck down and executed for what he had to say. I think he was quite tired, probably, of the whole thing and was only too prepared to go to be with the Lord. But it, his, his words are calm, they're quiet, but they're absolutely uncompromising. Oh, yes, yes, I can see quite well. First, he rebukes them for drinking and profaning and defiling the temple, uh, the temple uh, vessels. Then <coughs> he reminds... Belshazzar, of the madness that God uh, smote Nebuchadnezzar with and the way that Nebuchadnezzar came into a knowledge of the Lord. And then he pointed out to Belshazzar that Belshazzar had forsaken uh, uh, any instruction that had been given him by his grandfather. And then uh, you know the story. He interpreted it. Um, thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. Henceforth thy kingdom shall be divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Daniel was made third ruler of the kingdom. And, says the scripture, with the simplicity and the brevity that sometimes it has, that very night Belshazzar was slain and Darius became king of Babylon. It all happened within a few hours. The writing the interpretation, the exaltation of Daniel, and the change of one world empire to the next great world empire of history. It all happened in a night, and I believe uh, most of you will probably know that it's one of the great wonders in the sense of ancient history, how Babylon just suddenly rolled away in a night, uh, just 
disintegrated and Persia took over. Now, the interesting thing is this. I've entitled this chapter The Sovereignty of God in the Recalling and the Restoration or Promotion of Daniel. You see, the next reign was to be Cyrus. And the Lord was using this amazing situation to engineer Daniel into the most powerful and most influential position in the whole empire. He was in semi-retirement. How else could it have happened except by this way? And in this remarkable way, he was made, now listen, he was made third ruler of the kingdom. Well, that's quite clear. Belshazzar was killed that night. That makes him almost second. And his father, Nabonidus, uh, was later taken into custody when Cyrus marched straight on from Babylon and left Darius, as far as we know, in charge, in an interim kingship, as it were, uh, over this occupied territory. Well, when Darius came in, what did he find? He found the whole of the government and administration was in the hands, not of a Babylonian, whom he couldn't trust, but in the hands of a Jew. And they couldn't trust the Jews. For only just previously, the great prophet of the Persians had risen, a man called Zoroaster, who'd had tremendous influence upon them, and had brought them and the Jews into a great sympathy. We can't go into what Zoroastrianism is. But, uh, it's a very, very interesting uh, ancient religion uh, which had much in common uh, with what the Lord had shown to the uh, people of God in the, in the Old Testament. Well, now when he comes, he, the Persian government's attitude was one of sympathetic and kindly interest in deported peoples. Where has the Babylonians been anything but that? And uh, so here he finds in charge of the whole empire, a man called Belteshazzar, or called Daniel. Right? He's in charge. And so when you come to the sixth chapter, <coughs> you find that Darius is a great friend of Daniel. And Daniel's already engaged in his ministry of prayer. And I've entitled this sixth chapter, The Sovereignty of God in the Deliverance of Daniel from the Lions, His Exaltation and the Fulfillment of His Prayer Ministry. You know what was happening. He was in, engaged in a very vital prayer ministry. We know what it was from Daniel chapter 9. It was to pray the people back into the land. He discovered from the word of God that they were due to go back. Time was almost fulfilled and now he got on his knees and was praying it into being. As I've often said, he started prayer where we usually end. When he found out what the will of God was, he didn't stop praying, he started praying. And he started to pray it into actual being to realize it through prayer, to effect it by prayer. And then you get this tremendous assault upon Daniel. The, the changeover of administration uh, was very interesting. Darius um, uh, appointed 120 governors of the provinces. And then from these 120 governors, he elected three presidents who would be in charge of them all and would be a kind of supreme privy council that had charge of the whole empire. And they were responsible to the king himself. So you had the king, then you had the three, then you had the 120, and then you had all the other civil service and all the rest of it, you know. I'm afraid that was still part and parcel of administration and government in those days as it is today. Um, 
Now, the interesting thing was that Darius wanted to put Daniel, he wanted to create an especial position for Daniel. He was so impressed by Daniel that he wanted to create a special position of a kind of vice-regency almost uh, over the Privy Council. So there would be Daniel, then the three, and then the 120, and then the whole empire. And of course, as always, jealousy was and the jealousy of the people knew no bounds, of the others knew no bounds. And the only way they knew they could trap Daniel was by his prayer ministry. I have no doubt there must have been something so absolutely eating Daniel up over this ministry of prayer, which of course we know the secret of, we know what it was. They didn't. That they thought the only way we're going to get hold of Daniel is by something to do with his prayer. So it says they consorted together, or the word really, the Hebrew word is a kind of uh, mob, uh, kind of concerted action. They went into the king together, all 120 of them, and uh, said to the king, now then, we want you to do something. I should imagine they said something on the line. Look here, the changeover administrations caused a lot of unrest and there was a lot of trouble going on, all different weird prophets and prophetesses telling people this, that, and the other. Now the thing to do is this. Say, no, there can't be any prayer for a month, except prayer or petition made to the king. Then that will kill off all that's agitated and <clears throat> restless due to the changeover administration and uh, uh, we'll be able to uh, uh, give everyone back their freedom in a month. He's being delivered from the lion's den, his enemies given to the lions, and that simply meant this, that before Cyrus, who had been mentioned two centuries before by the prophet Isaiah, came actually onto the scene in a practical way, every enemy of Daniel had been removed from the court and from any position of influence whatsoever, and Daniel was absolutely supreme with the administration of the whole empire in his hands. He, he had... He occupied evidently in a special position uh, uh, over the, even the uh, Privy Council of Three and the 120. And all those enemies that had accused him and so on were dead. He didn't want them to die. They had uh, sealed, signed and sealed their own fate and they were gone. Exactly one year later, Cyrus came back from conquering all the territory of the old Babylonian empire, Darius, the interim kingship of Darius, as far as we know, gave way for Cyrus. Cyrus became king, and the first thing Cyrus did was to issue a state decree and edict commanding the people of God to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild their house uh, uh, and rebuild their city. Well, unbelieving uh, scholars and so on have always questioned that. They say, look at the language of that thing. No unsaved heathen monarch could write biblical scriptural language uh, of the kind that that state decree uh, has been written in. But they all forget one simple fact, that scripture quietly assumes that Daniel was himself in charge of the administration and that all the practical affairs of the empire were in his hands. The king just signed and settled things and uh, generally uh, took the lead in that way. You understand? So it is quite possible 
that Daniel not only affected the return of the remnant to the land by prayer, but he was actually materially or physically instrumental in getting them back. He probably even, I would go so far as to suggest that he even worded the decree and the edict that was uh, proclaimed. Well, when you come to that, you come to the end of Daniel chapter 6. You come to the end of the first section of Daniel, and what have you, what have you got? You've got Daniel absolutely at the, uh, the, the most supreme position in a heathen, anti-God empire. Uh, and, uh, and Daniel is in a position that is unaffected. I don't suppose anyone ever faced any, the antagonism that Daniel uh, faced, and I don't suppose anyone has ever known the conflict that Daniel lived in and the unbelievably <coughs> impossible situations through which he had to go. But what it was, was the end? Because the sovereignty of God was inside of him, because the sovereignty of God was with him, the result was he ended up on top. On the very top. Not just near the top but on the very top. I don't know, but I think Cyrus owed a lot. And you know, there's one very interesting thing, that of all the kings or monarchs or despots of ancient history, Cyrus is one of the few that has a good <coughs> testimony borne to him by all. <coughs> He's supposed to be a kind, good, and godly man. And I myself have little doubt that Daniel... Uh, had very real and great influence upon Cyrus as Zoroaster had uh, upon his predecessors. Now we come to the next section of Daniel. <clears throat> and uh, for, from chapter 7 to 12. And of course we come to the most complex and the most difficult uh, part of Daniel. Uh, and I want just to say three things <coughs> first before we traverse it as quickly as we can. The first is that the visions in the book of Daniel are linked with each other. That's very important. Each one taking a feature or features of the preceding and explaining and expanding them. That means that each successive vision in Daniel, even including the one in Daniel chapter 2, and then Daniel 7, 8, 9, 10 to 12, takes a feature or features of the proceeding and develops them. Very interesting, because later when we study the book of Revelation, we should discover the same uh, method. And then secondly, we find <coughs> in at least two of them that the predicting and defining of characteristics of history are invested with meaning for the time of the end. I will give you an example of that. Um, for instance, the career and the character of Antiochus Epiphanes is given in remarkable detail. But there are things said about him which cannot refer to the man himself, uh, which cannot refer to that actual situation in, in history. But look through him as it were making him a kind of great figure of the last great despot in world history who is yet to come. <coughs> um, 
it is very interesting, of course, the scriptural method of doing this. You remember in Isaiah 14, um, Isaiah uh, prophesies against the king of Babylon. And then all of a sudden he flies away, as it were, into heaven and says things about the king of Babylon that just couldn't be the king of Babylon. He says he was in the Garden of Eden, says this about him and that about him and the other. Calls him a day star, says, oh, Lucifer, how hast thou fallen down? And so He's obviously talking about the devil. And in that sense, the king of Babylon, uh, which of course is not Nebuchadnezzar or someone previous to that, that uh, uh, Isaiah is speaking of, is at, almost, as it were, a personification of Satan himself. And from the king of Babylon, uh, over goes the prophet to the great one that he represents. Now, this is exactly the same method that the scripture uses in the prefiguring of Christ. You all suddenly find that David is speaking about his own experience. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then goes on about the dogs compassing him and them parting lots on his clothes and not breaking his bones. Things that are unbelievable. David never had any bones. But what's he talking about? They never parted his clothes. And I'm saying, what's he talking about? Suddenly, David, in his own experience, has become the, the figure of Christ himself. Well, I can't explain it in any other way, but it's a scriptural method. Ezekiel speaks of the king of Tyre. And then all of a sudden, you know so well, in Ezekiel 28, he suddenly says, Thou wast in the gar Eden, the garden of God, when I made thee. Thou wast the anointed cherub that covereth, and all this kind of thing, which couldn't possibly speak of a mere mortal. He's taken a step from the man to Satan himself. Now, in the same way, you will find in some of these visions that you have the, an amazing prediction concerning historical figures in Greek history, for instance, or Roman history. And then suddenly, the prophet takes a step from them to their great, uh, that, the one that they only prefigure. And you know, and this is a thing that I think others have seen as well as myself, uh, you know it's an, uh, there's an amazing uh, similarity in despots. You take all the despots of the world, and if you brought their histories together, you would find there's something that all, they almost seem to be the reincarnation, uh, one of the other. They take Nero, come right the way down to modern times, take Hitler. You've got almost reincarnation of the very spirit of the man. And so you can go on. It's amazing similarity. There's a common theme, a common basis, a common origin to all this despotism uh, and tyranny, which has, of course, its roots in hell, that's all, and has a satanic character, which make, gives it a kind of family uh, likeness. Do you understand? In the same way that the family of God should have a family likeness. Well, there you are, it's a true, it's true. The mo and then thirdly, and this is most important, the most important thing to remember in studying these visions is their theme. Their theme is the sovereignty of God over the nations in world history. Whether we believe that most of these visions have been fulfilled <coughs> as some do, for instance, Philip Morrow and others. They believe that every vision here has been fulfilled, all refer to the coming of the Lord and were fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Or whether we believe that they are all to do 
with the last phase in world history, which other godly men believe, such as Grattan Guinness, G.H. Pemba, and others like that, great scholars, believe that every one of these visions is to do with the last phase of world history, all in the future. Or whether we believe uh, that it is a mixture of both. It does not detract from the essential message, which is the sovereignty of God over uh, the nations in world history. That's the essential message. And whether it's all been fulfilled, it still doesn't take away from it. The point was that Daniel predicted things that came to pass hundreds of years after he predicted them. And it shows the sovereignty of God over it all. Uh, so it doesn't really detract from the, act, the essential message. Well, we have entitled this whole section from chapter 7 to chapter 12, The Sovereignty of God over seen over the nations in world history. <coughs> now the first we find in Daniel chapter 7. Um, and I have called it the sovereignty of God over world history and its end. Sovereignty of God over world history and its end. Mark that. The vision of the four beasts. Now from this chart that I put up on the board, you can see the remarkable link with Nebuchadnezzar's vision. Can you see the correspondence that there is? I have been able to put everything, of course, upon the board, but this is most, most important that you understand this chart because I believe uh, the whole understanding of these visions depends on it. Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8. In Daniel chapter 2, in the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw, you have a head of fine gold. Later in Daniel 7, it is represented this time as a lion with the, with the wings of an eagle. Now, gold is the most precious metal uh, that we have. And the lion is the king of the beasts, and the eagle <coughs> is always known as the king of the birds. These two are the, uh, the leaders, as it were, in their different spheres. So you have this remarkable link between the two. Um, later, the eagle's wings, we read in Daniel 7, were plucked off from the lion, and he was given the mind of a man and the heart of a man, and made to stand upright as a man. It refers to Nebuchadnezzar. He was converted. And from being just uh, the head of gold, which was an image, substitute for the real humanity that God wanted, or a lion, which is a beast of prey and shows the real character of an unsaved, unregenerate humanity. An eagle or vulture, the word really is vulture. Uh, again, a bird of prey. God converted him. And the wonderful thing is the scripture says, the mind, the heart of a man was given to him and he was set on his hind legs. That's what Daniel saw of the lion. He became a man. That's very important to an understanding of the vision, I might say, because it just shows that God does not consider unsaved human beings to be men and women. That's why Jude says in his little epistle, they are brute beasts, sensual, brute beasts, without reason or understanding. Uh, then secondly, uh, in the vision of Daniel 2, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the breast and the arms noted a division into two, right and left arm, of silver. 
And we find that its corresponding uh, symbol in Daniel 7 is a bear. Now, the interesting thing is silver is not as precious as gold, and the bear, whilst it's a ferocious creature, is not looked upon as uh, uh, superseding the uh, lion. He is looked upon always as second uh, to the lion, in fable and mythology anyway. And in his mouth, he has three ribs, three ribs in his fangs, uh, and he is raised up on one side. Now, note that, actually, what some translators put, his, his right paw is raised as if to strike. That's how the Septuagint translates it. The thought, again, is two. Always with the kingdom of me, or the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, you've got this duality fused into unity. Now, in Daniel 8, you don't have anything to do with Babylon, you don't have anything to do with Rome spoken of, but these two middle kingdoms are depicted in greater detail. So, from Daniel 7, you find that the last part of the image is emphasized and expanded. Then, in Daniel 8, you find these two are taken up, the features of these two, and expanded in detail. Now, the ram has two horns which correspond to the bear raised up on one side and the breast and arms, the two arms of silver. And one of the horns is higher than the other, and it's the last one, which corresponds again to one side being up. Do you understand? And it's again, it speaks always of Persia as taking the precedence over uh, media. And then here, It expressly says in Daniel 8 that the ram pushed westward, northward, and southward. And this threefold idea uh, in the uh, this symbolism of Persia is expressed with the bear with the three ribs that he has in his mouth. Then you come to the fourth part of the image, and it has a stomach our belly and thighs are brass. Brass is inferior to silver, as silver is inferior to gold. And the leopard corresponds to the brass. The leopard is inferior to the bear, to the bear as the bear is to the uh, lion. But there's some very interesting things about the leopard. It is much more fleet-footed than the lion or the bear. And one of the most remarkable things we shall see when it's expanded in the he-goat which again speaks of Greece, is its fleet-footedness. Now, the leopard has something which no leopard has, it has four wings. But the interesting thing is that in the vision of Daniel 8, it says that the he-goat, which had one great horn uh, in its head, which were broken, which was broken, became four smaller yet strong horns, which in their turn were overcome by one little horn that pushed itself up and overcame the four. Now, the interesting thing is the leopard had four heads, four-headed leopard with four wings. When you come to Daniel 8, it says of the he-goat that when he charged the ram, his feet never touched the ground. The same thought again. You see, it's our wings that they didn't, so fleet-footed. Which, of course, speaks of Alexander of Greece with his amazingly streamlined uh, and speedy <coughs> army when he destroyed Persia. Uh, then this one horn became four, which corresponds with the four heads and the four wings, and then the little horn. Now that's an expansion, you see, the little horn. 
Then when you come to the fourth part of the image, you have the legs of iron. The fourth beast. Uh, it corresponds to it. Terrible, dreadful, exceeding strong is the description, which corresponds with the legs of iron of the, of the image. Then you have feet and toes. Feet first in the vision of the image, and then later it's mentioned the toes of clay and, um, and iron. Corresponding with that, in the vision of Daniel 7, you have ten horns, and then a little horn that overcomes three of them, and becomes very great. And lastly, you have a stone cut, uh, not cut out with human hands, divine, divinely produced, which breaks and smashes it all. And in Daniel 7, you have the vision of the Ancient of Days, to whom one like unto a son of man comes. And to this one, the son of man, is given the kingdom and the glory and the honor. And uh, his kingdom is forever and ever. Now, I don't know whether that makes a lot of sense. Of course, if you haven't read uh, Daniel, it won't do. But if you have read Daniel uh, and read it once or twice, that should begin to make a little bit of sense. The point is, you see, that these different visions correspond with each other, each expanding the other and each um, uh, emphasizing something in the former. Um, now, I want you to note not only the correspondence of the lion, a an eagle with the head of fine gold, the bear with the breast and arms of silver and so on, but I'd like you also to note the difference that there is between the vision of Daniel 2 and the vision of Daniel 7. For Nebuchadnezzar, an unsaved man, saw history as a human, a gigantic human colossus, colossal human figure. That's how he saw it. But when God gave a revelation to Daniel, he revealed it to him in the nature of beasts and birds of prey. It's very interesting because it shows the way the Lord adapts himself to the person he speaks to. Uh, I can leave that. I won't dwell on it. But if anyone wants to ask a question later, I'll answer it uh, if they want to come to me. Uh, the earlier vision is here expanded. It represents world history from Nebuchadnezzar to the end with a particular emphasis upon the end. Now, let's just think for a few moments about Daniel 7. How remarkably true the symbolism uh, is of each empire. When you think of the Lion and the Eagle, of course, I suppose those of you who've seen any pictures of ancient Babylon will have seen at least somewhere this great lion figure with the eagle's wings on it, which always represented Babylon anyway, Assyrian Babylon. Um, it was peculiarly uh, apt uh, as far as Babylon went, um, the whole sense of Babylon, as far as scripture goes, is that it ushered in something. It was the beginning, it was the initiator of something that today we're still in. And the bear, again, uh, it's interesting that the bear represents Persia, because Persia carried everything before it by sheer brute force more than anything else. Um, if you read anything about history, you're, one of the things that will amaze you is the manpower 
that, that the Persians launched against their enemies. Unbelievable. Uh, they just believed in bulldozing everything before them. Whereas the leopard is a peculiarly apt uh, symbol uh, of Greece. For Greece, you will remember, when she conquered Persia, did it with a remarkably small army. And you'll remember how Alexander uh, sped over the ground, as it were, uh, when he conquered uh, the Persian uh, army, and how he took them all by surprise. They never expected him to get there so quickly. Uh, but he was there. He was only 32, and you remember the tremendous victory that he gained, and he died almost the night that he had gained his great uh, victory. And the fourth. Well, the fourth is the Roman. And whilst we must say, of course, that it says clearly here that the Roman was diverse from all the others, and it's true that the Roman Empire was diverse. It, there was uh, much more about it, which, of course, even to today, we've still much of our system of administration and law and uh, everything else, so many things go back to uh, original, original Roman ideas. It's absolutely amazing. I suppose most of you do realize that. Of course, from Rome, Rome was only a development of Greece. Greece was a development of Persia and Babylon. All have got their own originality and yet have borrowed and built upon the previous, until finally here we are in the 20th century, and we had this amazing history behind us, as far as scripture goes anyway, uh, a, 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 a foundational layer, a fourfold foundational layer for our, what we call our European, or whatever you like it, uh, civilization. Well, it's all there. It is interesting that the heraldic emblems of nations are all beasts of prey on the whole, except now and again for a goat and a ram. It's a very strange thing. Do you think about it? All the, um, I think it's Pember who points out that nearly all the emblems of Europe are somehow or other stem back to uh, one or other of these creatures. An interesting point. Then from verse 17, and if you compare it with verse 23 in chapter 7, you will see that the emphasis is upon leaders as the personification of their system. When Daniel asked for the meaning of this, he was told these four great beasts are four kings that shall arise. But please do not, as some people have, take it that this means that these visions are not to do with the empires. They take the kings as personifications of the systems that they produced and developed. In the same way that when we draw a picture of France today, a cartoonist draws a picture of France, he draws a picture of uh, a caricature of de Gaulle. Or you find a caricature of uh, Khrushchev or Macmillan or was Eisenhower and so on. We depict a whole nation by its leader. In the same way scripture has taken Nebuchadnezzar representing Babylon, Cyrus representing Persia, Alexander representing Greece, and so on. Do you understand? It has taken up people and in actual fact, people are, uh, generally speaking, the motivating energy behind any system. When you've got something like communism, then you've got to have a man like Stalin who gives a, a, a character to it. Or you get a man like Mao Zedong who gives a different kind of character to it. It's both communism, but there's a different kind of brand in it. 
In the same way that Mussolini gives the character to fascist Italy, Hitler gave the character to Nazism. And so we can go on. Um, God always stems things back to people. And in all cases, you can do that. A good man has an unbelievable influence when he is in a position of power. And so also with an evil man. That, of course, is why uh, when we've got the lion, as I've mentioned, a heart of a man is given to him and he's made to stand like a man. The eagle's wings are taken away. The prey-like, ferocious side is suddenly changed into a human being. It was the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, all four are found at the end. Now, you must remember, you must uh, mark this. Uh, though they speak of succeeding world empires, all four are found at the end. Um, what does this mean? Why should all four be found at the end? Um, because, you see, I think we've got to learn from this, that the civilization that we know today is the product of all four. And I believe that in this particular vision, as in the image one, you remember the gold, the silver, and the brass, and the iron were all destroyed when the stone fell on the feet. And although a succession of empires is depicted, it may well be, although I don't want to venture into excessive prediction, it may well be from Revelation chapter 13 that the last phase of world history will see a conglomeration of all the former territories of these empires. It's interesting that in Revelation 13 you get this beast again, comes out of the sea. But this time, it's not first a lion with eagle's wings, then a bear, then a leopard, and then a fourth beast, which was diverse from the others. But you find that it's a body of a leopard, and the feet of the bear, and the head of the lion, and so on. It, it's a conglomeration of all the... And this is the system which has a false prophet, and which we know as 666. It's a, a symbolic sign of a, wor of a world power which will not allow you to eat or to, to buy or to sell without being registered to it. Uh, we've seen something, of course, in past days of that in Europe, but and today still. But here we are, I'm just mentioning these things. We're being brought step by step to the revelation, the, the uh, picture in the book of Revelation, where you have this conglomeration presented of these four. Here, it's the successive kingdoms that are presented. But nevertheless, three of them seem to survive the fourth. And then I want you also to note the ten horns and the little horn. Because here we have the career of European history. Upon this, all scholars agree, I'm thankful to say, that we have the career of European history presented. Out of the Roman uh, Empire arise ten kingdoms or kings. And uh, European history, of course, is the story of those. They are intermarriage, they're seeking to unify, never being able to do it. And gradually, the rise of constitutionalism which is, which is represented in the image by clay, uh, uh, trying to blend with the iron, the two divergent 
characteristics of Roman civilization, despotism on one side, constitutionalism on the other, and the two just not being able to uh, be unified or fused. So one trying to give strength to the other, and the other making the strong weak. Uh, ten horns, and then suddenly, in the end, we discover one little horn, very small and insignificant, rises up, which conquers three, and this little horn has our eyes of a man and mouth speaking great things, and suddenly this little horn is presented to us as the final great despot of world history. He is the one who, in the end, initiates uh, a drive against God's people and expresses as he wears out the saints by harrying them, by pressurizing them, by worrying them. Gradually, he wears out the people of God. Well, whether there's going to be a, 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 a sort of resuscitation of, te of the ten kings or leaders, don't worry about the word kings. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, what we mean, royal blood. It just means leaders, authorities, people who principal authority. Uh, whatever it means, one thing we can say with absolute certainty, that the end of world history will see uh, what we could call either a worldwide authority or a partially worldwide authority that will be absolutely, by its very nature, blatantly antichrist seeking to wipe out every vestige of true faith and by every means at its disposal seeking to wear out uh, those who are faithful uh, to the Lord. This is the picture that is presented to us in Daniel 7. In Daniel 8, it is taken up and expanded. In Daniel 9, uh, we, uh, we, as it were, drop it for a moment. But when we come to Daniel 10, 11, and 12, the whole thing is expanded in detail. Uh, I can only leave it like that this evening. I will say just one or two other things, and then we must end. Uh, there's a, in this chapter 7, you have terrible tribulation. And it is spoken of as a time, two times, and half a time. Now what on earth does a time, two times, and half a time? Of course, all of you are mathematical will realize straight away that means three and a half times. Uh, well, why does the scripture say three and a half times and be done with it? And what does, what is a time? Well, people say it's a year. Because, of course, in the book of Revelation, you have 42 months, 1,260 days, all these different uh, ways of putting the same thought. All the time, three and a half, three and a half, three and a half. One time, two times, half time. What does it mean? Well, listen, for those of you who are a little mathematical, and I'm not the least bit. One time, two times, what should you go on to? Four times. And that makes sense. And the book of Daniel is built on two figures, 40 and 7. And we shall find that out when we come to the vision of the 77s, the 490 uh, cycles. And all that means when we come to it. Um, 
how it works out and how we come into it. It's the most unbelievably detailed prediction. And what are three and a half times? Why is this tribulation called a the saints of the Lord shall be given over to Antichrist, as it were, for a time, two times, and a half times? Because it will see, you see, that time, unless it was shortened, there will none of the elect will be saved. So you get one time, two times, and it looks as though it's going to go right on to complete destruction, and they're all half time. Instead of the four times, half time, and then. Now, the coming back of the Lord Jesus is amazingly abrupt, and it's presented here as an abrupt thing. We find immediately the Ancient of Days. Uh, it's a, a wonderful vision Daniel sees. He sees this uh, beast, and he sees these ten horns, and he sees three horns plucked up. One little horn suddenly takes precedence over all the others, and then he sees an eye, and a mouth speaking great things. Then, all of a sudden, he just, his eyes are turned away, and he sees the Ancient of Days, the wonderful description of God the Father. And then he sees one light of the Son of Man coming near. And he sees that all the kingdoms of the earth are given over to this one who's worthy. And all the time that this is happening, down there, this little horn is speaking the most unbelievably filthy blasphemy, according to Daniel. He's, Daniel is so distracted by what's coming out of the mouth of this little horn that he looks down in the end, and then he says, and then he saw that the beast was slain. It was the end. And uh, everything was given over to the um, Son of Man, and it says his kingdom. Is forever, forever and ever. That's lovely, uh, the way that uh, it's put. His kingdom is forever, forever and ever. Uh, as if to accentuate the fact that the long centuries of world history may have seemed wearing, wearingly long to the people of God, especially to those who've suffered and been martyred uh, in it. But uh, his kingdom, is forever, forever and ever. And so I think we can learn, and we're going to leave it at Daniel 7, I think we can learn three things. The, at the end of world, the end of world history, I don't know whether we shall live to see it or not. I'm not going to be a prophet on that. I personally believe we're in it. But I don't want to be quoted on, on that. I think many others share the same feeling amongst the Lord's people. But the end of world history we shall find all the preceding elements of the times of the Gentiles in final form and development. That's why the last great world power is symbolized by the figure 666. Man, the figure, the symbol, the number of man in his most final form of development brought right out to show exactly what he is by nature. So if we're all looking for a happy future, I'm afraid the scripture does not paint it for us. Uh, it instead paints uh, a future that is very dark because we understand that all the brutality and the wickedness and the evil of this whole world system in the end will be drawn out into its final expression. Uh, development, uh, final development of expression in the end. And if people a uh, hundred years ago thought it couldn't possibly happen, of course today we have had not only a world war to prove it and the unbelievable cruelties that were practiced.
we have to this, at this very time now things happening on the earth which are on at least as gigantic a scale <coughs> of wickedness and cruelty as ever existed before. So all these things in the end are going to be there. All these elements are going to be there and they're going to be there in a developed form, a refined, developed form. And then also we can learn from this the terrible conflict that there will be at the end. It's the conflict of the ages heightened up or condensed into a short span. I'm not one who believes it will be actually three and a half years, although I don't know. Well, thank God if it is only three and a half years. But all I do know is this, those three and a half years will seem like a hundred. And during that time, when this whole, the whole battle and conflict of the whole ages of human history are condensed into one last final onslaught of Satan to destroy the purpose of God, as he's never sought to do it before, except at the cross, and it will be as bad as the cross. Uh, at that point, God will cut it short. Instead of allowing it to go on to what would have been complete destruction, Cut it short, and uh, the end. <coughs> and the outcome is the final overthrow of all evil, we learn from this vision, the enthronement of God's Christ, his saints possessing the kingdom forever. It's the sovereignty of God determining everything. That's the thing I love about this vision. It's the sovereignty of God determining everything. Listen, God's sovereignty, we learn from this vision, determines the rise of evil men and systems, the duration of evil men and systems, the end of evil men and systems. So let them all come. They have a point at which they can rise. They have a length of, a lot over which they cannot live. And they have an end which is absolutely fine. But I also see from this that the sovereignty of God has determined the establishment of the Lord Jesus as his Messiah, as the Messiah, as the King, over all the kingdoms of the earth in the end. And not only that, but as a, he, has de he is determined upon the possession of that kingdom by the saints. So there's nothing in one way to fear, although it does say that if the time, if those days were not shortened, uh, the elect themselves uh, could not uh, be saved. I believe there's a lot more which we shall now have to leave till after Christmas uh, in the book of Daniel. But I, I, although I wanted to finish it this evening, there's some ways I'm not sad that we haven't because I, I whilst I don't like excessive fantasy, which has, I'm afraid, surrounded this subject of Daniel and his prophecies, I also believe that there's a lot of solid, genuine value uh, within it for us who live now, even if we are hundreds of years off from the end. Nevertheless, we're found in these prophecies. We're found in the development of that last, final world empire when it broke up into ten. And uh, then, at the end of it, uh, it will re, as it were, reproduce itself in a new form. And, uh, well, it's anyone. I don't know what will happen then, how, what course to take. We shall have to wait until we get to the book of Revelation. Maybe we shall be nearer those days then, um, uh, when we might have some more light upon the end.
Daniel just gives us the outline. Daniel helps us to realize that whatever we're going to face, should we live that long, and should we be in the times of the end, whatever we're going to face, the outcome is that the Lord's going to be absolutely on top and going to be absolutely victorious. So we can thank.